So we have here uh, a nice little group of, of sayings uh, by Jesus that we all might have heard some version of in, in our lives, but uh, our familiarity with them shouldn't uh, mask the, I think, extreme nature of these teachings. Right? These, are, these are words that ask a lot of us as people. They are um, speaking especially sharply in this moment, right before an election, in a time of serious unrest and fear and anger um, and rage that really, I think, exemplify some of the truly sad things about the way we as human beings uh, treat each other, right? And in this way, uh, we might open our eyes to this passage and see ourselves and everything going on around us that is um, in such stark contrast to an idea like love your enemies or do not judge, right? And I think, um, as I thought about that this past week, I honestly became pretty kind of despondent. And I was asking why, like, why are we just in general so shitty to each other? Why do we live in a world so full of violent retaliation and hatred and judgment? And furthermore, what really is this thing that God asks of us in this passage? Is it even possible? Is it realistic? Does it uh, just pertain to certain groups of people like our friends? Or is it supposed to be for everybody in the world? Uh, is it politically viable? Is it something that brings true change in this world? Does it just let evil go unimpeded? I drove myself into a bit of a frenzy thinking about all this. I guess some of you might have some similar questions as that when you were reading this, but I'm going to ask all of us here, myself included, to just try and let go of such questions for a minute. Just like let that leave your mind, let all the complications of these passages just sort of dissipate for a second. And instead, I want to start and just tell you a story from my life. This is a story from uh, a chapter from my uh, spiritual, spiritual autobiography. Back in grad school, uh, the first class I ever took with my cohort, we all had to present these uh, spiritual autobiographies to, to each other. And we learned a lot about each other um, by doing this, perhaps too much sometimes, but it was still a gift uh, that we did that I always come back to. And so that's why we've taken this idea for our upcoming welcome season as well. And so this story I'm about to tell is a very abridged version of what I told back then, parts of which um, I think I might have shared with some of you before. So here it goes. When you're a kid, <laughs> there are a few things more important to you than friends. Right? Life is a desperate struggle in many ways to just make friends, right? The social world is a Darwinian battle for survival. Make friends or die. Who will I do my group projects with or who will I play with during recess? Who will I sit with during lunch? What birthday parties will I be invited to or excluded from? These things matter so much. In elementary school, I had a nice group of buddies I hung out with. We were uh, kind of the nerdy people. We loved cartoons. Uh, we talked a lot about Animaniacs. I don't know if you remember that show. We collected Ren and Stimpy comics, which um, I find really strange right now. I hate those from my conservative parents. Uh, they were a good friend of mine, right? And we got along great. I was thrilled to have them in my life. But when I got older, I entered junior high school, I found that my priorities shifted a great deal. I had discovered, I had begun discovering my Korean Americanness and how what that meant for me in living in America. And in, in the town I grew up, I was surrounded by all these Koreans, tons of Koreans. And some of them, I, in my eyes at least, I thought were like super cool. These were like super cool Korean kids. They had spiky hair and long bangs and they wore baggy clothes and 
some of them were like literal gangsters in gangs. People feared them. I wanted to be like these kids. I wanted to be a cool Korean kid. So I abandoned, shamefully, my Ren and Stimpy friends. I bought the baggiest pants my parents would let me get. I wanted to go blonde, but my mom refused to let that happen. So I started to uh, hang out with some of these people. Maybe I was thinking my plan was coming to fruition. I was going to be accepted. I was going to be one of them. But alas, just when I thought I had made it into the world, I found myself, I remember this um, distinctly, this uh, little, the scariest little gangster guy. His name was David Huang. He's about four foot 10 coming up to me in the quad during lunch and just cussing me out in a very scary way and telling me he was going to jump me. I can't even remember why he was so mad at me. I think maybe I blocked that part out of my memory, but I realized that day that I was not to be a cool Korean gangster. It just wasn't meant to be. And so because of that, I entered into high school shortly thereafter, basically completely friendless. I'm I'm 35 years old now. I still feel weird thinking about this time in my life. There were Lonely days, wandering around campus like a vagabond during snack time, during lunchtime, the shame, the horror uh, I felt. If you can imagine what that must have been like for you as a freshman in high school to have no friends and be alone all the time. And I lived that way until I found uh, Mr. Mac's classroom, where every day during lunch, the Christian club would meet. And this was not like an official club, something about rules and regulations, but they called themselves the Christian club. And each day, uh, something different would be going on there. Students would, uh, or someone would be speaking, or there'd be someone playing music, and students would just sit there and eat their lunch and be together. And so, and so did I. I went there every day, no longer alone, no longer having to wander the halls by myself. Yeah, it was kind of weird. It wasn't really my ideal of being a Korean thug, but uh, you know, it was a place for me to be. I had found some kind of home there. Over the years, I would become deeply involved in this in this club. I would join the leadership of it. I would be coming up with programming. I would be um, praying every morning in front of the flagpole. We were uh, zealots. We were young. We were zealots. We uh, were passionate. One day, a group of us decided uh, to see if we could walk around the school and just bring people to the Lord. Right, campus was a mission field for us, and um, I remember that particular day. I, I we all got together to to plan this walk, and then we dispersed, um, hoping to have the spirit speak through us. And uh, despite all my passions, I was extremely nervous. Uh, it still isn't really easy to just go up to someone and be like, "Let me tell you about Jesus," right? And so, uh, finally, I walked around for most of the lunch, but towards the end, I spotted this kid sitting by himself. He looked very sad and alone. And it wasn't that he was sad and alone that made me go talk to him. He, he just seemed less likely to laugh at me if, if I said something weird. So I went up to him. And that day is when I met Jorge. No idea what I said. I remember he just kind of mumbled at me. But um, I told him about the club, told him to check it out. And then I got out of there. During that same year, I had become very busy as a student. I was elected into student government. I had this vast group of friends. I had I had made it, right? I had found my belonging in all these other places. And for those reasons and, and a lot of other ones, the Christian club leadership decided that uh, meetings would go from only daily to happening on Fridays. I remember when we told Mr. Mack, you know, the guy whose classroom this was, uh, that we were doing this, he seemed very disappointed. He'd been 
holding these things in his classroom every day for years. And I remember thinking when he was looking sad, like, oh, this old dude, he just like doesn't get it, right? He just doesn't get it. At some point, a couple months later, I went to Mr. Max's classroom to um, just like get, I think, talk to him about something during a day where we weren't supposed to have any meetings there. And I was surprised to find that he was actually still holding meetings. His classroom was still open and it was open every day, apparently, to whoever wanted to come in, eat their lunch and be around others, right? And I remember going in that there that day, there was a good handful of kids around. I think they were watching uh, Prince of Egypt or something like that. Um, and wouldn't you know it, uh, there was Jorge in the classroom. He was laughing, having a good time. He clearly got to know other people who were there as well. And as I left, uh, I left feeling something like shame, something like guilt. Um, clearly I had forgotten something about the whole point of the club, right? Something that Mr. Max seemed to know, something that I once knew at some point. And the story. I consider this uh, part of my spiritual autobiography because um, there is for me this ever-present truth about what it means to create spaces of belonging for people. You know, maybe that is the most important thing that I can do in my life. Right? And I tell this story to remind myself, remind myself that I was once a wanderer and in being found, I allowed myself to forget that there are others who wander alone as well. As strange as it might seem, uh, this is what I think about when I think about these impossible teachings from Christ that we read today. Because the question for me is not how and why should we follow these imperatives, but from what kind of person, from what kind of God would these ideas even come from? It was once suggested to me by an atheist friend, um, suggested is a, the wrong word. A friend once made the accusation that Christianity is a religion that preys on people's despair, right? It uses the language of love and grace and forgiveness to trick people who feel lost and abandoned and unwanted, alone, without purpose. This always struck me as a strange interpretation because uh, number one, I think you can really make that accusation about anything in our world if you thought about it that way. But also because my question would be, what is the better answer for such things, right? What do we give them? Do we give them just a bunch of stuff? Do we give them Tinder? Do we give them the American dream or political salvation? Christ or Christianity, at least in its best form, is about the good news that there is a loud and affirmative yes to the world and everything in it. We belong with God. We are loved by God. Right? No matter who you are or where you come from, what family you were born into, what you look like, and even more radically for us today, which makes it so hard to believe, whatever you have said or done in your life, whatever political party you are a part of, whoever you voted for or will vote for on Tuesday, the answer is still yes, right? This love, this yes from God, it crosses all depths of our being. I think sometimes our over uh, sentiment, sentimentalized notions of love obscure that personal feeling does not encompass the depths of all that we are. I recently was at a Zoom birthday party for my niece and my parents made everybody on that phone call sing the song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. And I was mortified uh, 
that's sort of the sentiment or sentimental uh, aspects I'm talking about right here, right? To belong in this sense doesn't just mean finding a group of friends or a lover. It goes so far as to say that we belong in this world. Our existence belongs with all that is in the cosmos. That too is what love is, which for me at least is the harder part to accept and believe. Do not retaliate, do not pay back evil with evil, love your enemies, do not judge others, give what you want, what you would want to receive. I think only a God that says yes to everything could say such a thing. And only a people who have accepted that yes could hear them. These are signposts as much as they are instructions. Martin Luther King Jr., our most relevant evangelist for nonviolence, uh, once gave a speech at Berkeley and he said, the nonviolent resistor does not seek to humiliate or defeat the opponent, but to win his friendship and understanding. The aftermath of nonviolence is reconciliation and the creation of a beloved community. Nonviolent resistance is also an internal matter. And so at the center of our movement stood the philosophy of love. The attitude that the only way to ultimately change humanity and make for the society that we all long for is to keep love at the center of our lives. And when you come to love on this level, you begin to love men, not because they are likable, not because they do things that, attract, that are attractive, but because God loves them. If I may be so bold as to add something to MLK's words, um, it would be to say that one comes to love on this level when they have been loved in the same way when they've known that love in the same way. Right to go back in time and talk to young Tim, I would say uh, a lot of things. One is stop hiding for that girl. She will never love you. Uh, but also I would ask him, should not our finding belonging also create that for others? That would be a sign that you have truly found a home. Love is always simultaneously inward and outward. It is not first given and then given, or first not, is not first received and then given, like a gift to be gifted. I think it is more like a meal that is shared. You get to eat this food, but in doing so, at the same time, others are eating with you as well. How do we do this thing that Christ asked of us? How could we not, if we ourselves are loved? I think that is the question. For this is what love does to us. It opens us up and invites others to the table. It turns away hatred, violence, and judgment. It moves us to see our neighbors as ourselves. The biblical scholar Ulrich Luz, if I said that right, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount writes this, basic here is that every person shares in the same divine origin so that the universal love of human beings is in harmony with nature. In a world characterized by struggle, Christian faith tries in every case to establish on the basis of God kingdoms of on the basis of God's kingdom, signs of God's unconditional yes to people. That is what loving the enemy means. As I mentioned, we are out here in this remote area in Michigan. It's called Duck Lake, where the nearest grocery store is 20 miles away. And it might seem presumptuous to describe this as MAGA country, but I looked it up. 
And back in 2016, this region voted for Trump over Clinton by a whopping 42%. So yes, we are in Magaland. There's no presumption about it. And anytime I have seen anybody, which has not been a lot, but anytime I've seen anybody out here, I can't help but wonder what they must be thinking as they see uh, all these city slicking Asians, Anna Patrick, uh, here. What assumptions or ideas might they have about us? It may sound to you perhaps like I'm attempting to preach a message just days before election that we need to kumbaya and love everybody. It's only partly true. Our passage for today isn't about pretending everything's okay or everyone's a good person or that there uh, aren't real consequences to our actions. It says, indeed, there are enemies among us. Some people would take an eye or a tooth if they could. Right? There are tiki torch whites circling the wagons. There are those in a time of a pandemic who refuse to wear masks and would rather see thousands of people die than their stock portfolios fall. There is no kumbaya here right now, but there is still and always love, right? And a reminder that that is something that transcends everything else. What greater task do we have in this life but to know we belong and to share in that with others? In a world, I always get really emotional when I talk about this, but in a world characterized by struggle, uh, what do we have? But to know this love. Unconditional, universal, boundless, it says yes to our enemies, it says yes to lonely youths trying to find friends. It says yes to you and yes to me. And I think whatever happens on Tuesday or Wednesday or uh, whenever we actually find out the results of this, of this election, that will not change. That love will not change. It may get harder to believe in. I hope not, but it may get harder to believe in, but it's still will not change. That is good news, my friends. May we keep that in our hearts as we uh, all brace ourselves for what's to come and what may come. Amen.